Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to this episode of TIPQC's Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast. In March 2022, the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care will roll out a statewide optimal cord clamping project with the goal to increase the number of babies who receive the benefit of a delay in umbilical cord clamping. In our last episode, we learned about optimal cord clamping from our obstetrical friends and how we can implement this on the maternal side of delivery. On this episode, we get to hear from the baby side. Dr. Anup Katheria is our guest today. He has published over 33 articles on timing of umbilical cord clamping and is one of the leading experts on optimal cord clamping. We're going to learn from him what optimal cord clamping is, what it can do for the baby, and how we can implement this into our practice. Dr. Katheria is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics with the University of California in San Diego and the Director of the Neonatal Research Institute at Sharp Mary Birch for Women and Newborns in San Diego, California. Under his leadership, the Neonatal Research Institute has conducted 30 trials in the past 10 years at the busiest delivery room hospital in California that has approximately 9,000 deliveries each year. Dr. Katheria and his group have five clinical trials currently in progress, and three of these involve umbilical cord management at the time of the delivery. I've had the benefit of getting to know and working with Anoop on previous clinical research projects, and I'm very excited to have him as a guest today. I'm also extremely excited to announce that he's going to be one of our speakers at the TIPQC annual conference in Nashville, March 7th and 8th, where he's going to be speaking on this project, and TIPQC will be kicking off this statewide project. So welcome, Anoop. We're certainly glad to have you here today. Yeah, thanks, Scott, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So first off, I'd like you to tell all of our listeners what optimal cord clamping is. Yeah, and I really like that use of the term optimal cord clamp because really, historically, we've used this term delayed cord clamping, the idea of waiting a set amount of time just to allow that baby to transition before the cord is clamped. And although historically this has been a long well-known intervention, over the last 30, 40 years, we've adopted the practice of clamping the cord too soon. So we've had to backpedal and reinstitute this practice of waiting at least a minute or so for allowing these term and preterm infants to transition before the cord is actually clamped. So does timing really matter? Yeah, it's always a great question. I think there's been a lot of recent physiological data saying that it's when the baby has transitioned that is established respirations. But I do think from a pragmatic standpoint, there has got to be some amount of time to allow that baby to start to breathe, start to gasp. And from what we've seen from most of the data, at least waiting a minute in these infants gives them some time. Sicker babies might need even more, but timing does play an initial role of allowing some steps for that baby to start to breathe and transition before we clamp the cord. Yeah, I think I want to pick up on something that you said in a later question, but I thought it was really interesting that you just said even longer may make a difference in those tinier, sicker babies. 
So we're going to come back to that in just a second. I think that's a fascinating concept I want to hear more about from you. What about the cutting the cord immediately after delivery? You said that's something that's a relatively recent practice, something that we've been doing the past 20 or 30 years without really any thought to it. What negative impact can there be to cutting the cord early? Yeah, I know. That's a great point. And Scott, a lot of that depends on the type of baby. We do know that for preterm babies, the risk of cutting the cord too early can deprive them of up to half of that fetal placental blood volume. As the baby gets to be more and more term, there's more blood in the baby or the fetus itself than the placenta. So clamping the cord early, first and foremost, deprives the infant of that fetal placental blood. Secondly, that baby that doesn't have the chance to aerate their lung, they're going to need to then pull that blood from other organs, i.e. the brain, the heart the intestines or other organs where they're essentially you're depriving that baby of oxygen and blood from those other tissues that could potentially help those infants. And we know from data that's been recently looked at that preterm infants that receive early cord clamping or immediate cord clamping have a higher mortality rate than babies that receive at least a 60 second delay. So in that preterm population, that has been shown to be harmful. In the term population, since the majority of term babies do quite well, Instead of seeing that reduction in mortality, we've actually seen a reduction in cognitive benefit at four years of life in a Swedish cohort that looked at babies receiving a two to three minute delay compared to early cord clamping. And boys were mostly affected, but children at four years of age had poor neurodevelopmental scores than those babies that received delayed cord clamping. So it depends on the population, but either way, whether it's neurological injury or developmental injury, or death, those are both poor outcomes. So early cord clamping is associated with negative effects, whether you're born term or preterm. So explain to us very simply, because again, our audience is going to be parents, lay people, some medical providers too. What physiologically is happening when we allow this delay in the clamping of the cord to occur, when we let nature take its course? Right. I think, so the simplest way to think of it is that the lungs need to expand and start to be used after birth. When the babies are in utero or as a fetus, they're using the placenta for gas exchange. So as that baby starts to breathe and aerate, we need to then distribute more blood into the lungs to allow for gas exchange to happen at the level of the lungs. And so to do that, we need to allow the baby to remain connected to the core for at least some amount of time to make that transition so that the baby's not using blood from other organs that are already being utilized, like the brain and the heart and the lungs. So when the baby's first born, there's a period of time where that baby needs to initially gasp and and start to breathe. And that's the most critical time where we want to leave that cord connected. Clamping the cord occurring at some point later will allow that baby then to not have these potentially adverse effects of not just the blood issue, but also just changes in their own heart rate, blood pressure. Some of these things we've seen in some of the animal data as likely occurring if we're clamping too soon, too early when that baby hasn't had that chance to transition yet. So you mentioned some of these benefits already. Can we break down benefits that term babies have shown to have from this in the literature and then benefits that preterm babies have been shown to have in the literature? So starting with the term babies, I mentioned some of that neurodevelopmental benefit. And one of the questions would be, well, how does that benefit play into it? Most people think that the benefit in term babies developmentally is probably from not just the blood itself, but iron stores and distribution of improving or reducing anemia in term babies. In fact, and I know we'll talk about this later, the World Health Organization has really recommended delayed cord clamping, particularly in term babies in low resource countries or low middle income countries, because the incidence of iron deficient anemia is so high. And we know aside from the cord clamping literature, 
having iron deficiency anemia is associated with long-term cognitive problems. So boosting these babies, giving them a boost of iron and red blood cell stores in, in these newborn babies at birth is going to have long downstream effects. And all-term babies, healthy-term babies, et cetera, they will still benefit from a period of time where they can receive this additional blood, i.e. additional iron. When you talk about the preterm baby, of course, they need iron in these blood stores as well. But because preterm babies are so much more fragile and any sort of fluctuations in their blood pressure, their blood volume, their heart rate, there's great animal work coming out of Australia that demonstrated in preterm equivalent lambs, when they clamp the cord early, when the lambs were not breathing compared to leaving them connected, the, as soon as the cord was clamped early, they had these immediate drops in their heart rate, immediate drops in carotid artery, the, the vessel that feeds our brain, drops in blood flow there. And then as the lambs were then allowed to breathe, it would shoot right up. So in our preterm babies, one of the things we worry about are these fluctuations in, in blood flow and blood volume. And we know that causes increased risk of brain bleed. So some of the old data suggested that there might be a reduction in brain bleeds in these babies and, and other harm in other organs. So this idea of hemodynamic or cardiac stability is a, a unique role that preterm uh, babies can benefit from by just sort of being left alone and allowing them to make that transition rather than us rushing in and clamping the cord and, and taking them away. And I think that's probably much more harmful in preterm babies. It doesn't mean it doesn't occur in term babies but we see more harm and, and morbidities in our preterm babies that receive early cord clamping. So there's plenty of other reasons why it's even more important in these tinier kids, the kids that were more afraid to wait in that might benefit from delayed cord clamping even more so than those term infants. I mean, I've seen some things in the literature that it decreases things like neonatologists. Of course, we don't love to give normal saline boluses at all or use vasopressors in right. these tiny babies at all. So if we can create hemodynamic stability and decrease the boluses, decrease the Absolutely. As suppressor uses, I mean, that's, I think, a huge thing with a, with a more, more simple baby. I've seen some things on stem cells, too. What role might stem cells play in this population? That's a great question. And in fact, a few people have asked that, have we seen enough literature suggesting? And a few people have attempted to look at, are we giving more stem cells to babies and, and having downstream benefits? I think intuitively, we know that cord blood, right? There's a huge industry with cord blood banking where people are harvesting this blood and these billions of stem cells to be used later down the road if the child develops leukemia or autism. Well, I always tell families, why not give those stem cells to your baby now, those billions of stem cells, and prevent that injury from occurring rather than waiting until later? I know that wasn't your original question, but I think it's an important point to talk about. Of course, this blood has lots of stem cells. And even though people haven't fully followed, isolated them in babies to say, well, how much do you get with delayed cord clamping versus early? The point is they're getting this additional blood and it, it must have long-term benefit in these babies. And it might contribute to some of the other benefits that we think we might be seeing in terms of long-term developmental outcomes and improvement in these babies as they get older. So absolutely, Scott, I think it's an important underplay role. A few studies have tried to look at counts in babies. I think it's just harder to do. Stem cells are very good at hiding in the body and so you can't always quantify it. But we do know that blood itself, if you look at it and, and as I've said, cord blood uh, banking companies have, have really monetized this. It, it's, there are plenty there for those babies that will probably have lots of benefits for them. So if I'm a, a physician or a provider that's sitting back listening to this, like that sounds like something I, I might be interested in doing, but we've been doing early cord clamping now for several decades. Are there any organizations that have actually looked at this data, looked at this evidence and said, hey, this is something that physicians need to be doing, both from a pediatric standpoint, from an obstetrical standpoint, who's weighed in on this? 
Absolutely. I mean, that's a great question. So every major governing body. So here in the United States, we have ACOG and, and AAP, both on the pediatric and the obstetrical side that have endorsed at least a 30 to 60 second delay on all pregnancies, term and preterm. Originally, it was just on preterm, but in the last few years, they've even come up with a statement on term babies. But we've seen it in SOGC in Canada, EAPM in Europe, World Health Organization for Developing Countries. Every major body has come out endorsing this as an important practice for all babies, not just in developing countries, but all. And I think part of that has only come on more recently, unfortunately, but I think now that it's permeated both of our specialties, I really think the onus is on us to follow those policies and those guidelines for those infants. Yeah. So again, I can see the provider who's listening say, okay, well, you know, I can, I can do this with the term baby. I can do this with the, the larger preterm baby, but you're asking me to do this with a 25-weeker who I know is going to need resuscitation immediately. I mean, ooh, that makes my heart beat a little funny. I've got to take a big, deep breath if you're asking me to, to do that. What's your advice there? How do we approach this? Yeah. And again, I go back to the idea that the more preterm the infant is, the more blood that's left behind. I, I really illustrate the blood argument when I talk to my obstetrical colleagues that that 25-weeker compared to that 30-weeker or that, quote, bigger baby, the bigger baby has more blood in them. They're bigger. The small baby has all that blood left behind in the placenta that can really help them not just immediately with resuscitation, but also in prevention of IVH, but just downstream and having a better long-term outcome. And we talk to them about the idea about that baby might need resuscitation. We talk about with our obstetrical providers, babies aren't coming out always breathing when they're preterm. They have weak muscles in their chest. They don't always take these huge gas that we want them to take when they're full term, and they just need some time and so gentle stimulation to get there. We had done a study where we looked at uh, with video recordings of preterm babies under 32 weeks and looking at when they start to breathe. And at 20 seconds, only about 40% of those babies took a gas. By 40 seconds, it was around 70%. And it wasn't until 60 seconds that 90% of those babies had started to do regular breathing. And I think that idea that it's a curve and we gently stimulate and get them there, they, most of them will start to breathe. Preterm babies generally are not asphyxiated in terms of needing resuscitation. They're not babies that are depressed like we think of full-term babies that might have brain injury. And we also know that while they're on the cord into the placenta, they're getting gas exchange. That placenta is still working. It didn't just stop working because the baby came out. It was working inside the mother, giving that baby oxygen. It's still going to continue to do that. And I think all those things fitting together have really, I think, helped change the culture of what most obstetricians are. I mean, they're holding the baby for the first time after birth in their hands versus handing that baby off and getting rid of the baby. And I think it's a cultural change. But I think as they start to do it and appreciate those benefits, I really do think they've come on board with it. Yeah, it is a huge culture change. And I've got to emphasize that last point that you said just one more time. We've got to realize when we're not clamping the cord, the baby is still on life support. Right. That is such a huge thing. That placenta is still working. It's still helping with Absolutely. gas exchange. We don't have to rush to, to do the resuscitation that we think these babies need. Right. That I think is really key to recognize as we're contemplating doing this. So is there any risk at all that optimal cord clamping or a delay in clamping of the cord might pose to the infant? Is there anything the parent that's listening to this, the infant care provider that's listening to this needs to worry about it all. Right. And that's a common question, or even more so, one of the questions you often get are, can you ever give the baby too much of that blood or over transfuse the baby? And the answer is 
prior to birth, that baby was having that same blood going back and forth. And whether that blood moves from the placenta to the infant as they mature, like I said in the term baby example compared to the preterm, it's whole blood. It's not that concentrated transfusion blood that we give to those preterm babies. It's their own whole blood that's just being redistributed back to them. So the answer is really a resounding no. There is no risk. Even the, and we can talk about this, the concerns of polycythemia, high hematocrits, or jaundice needing phototherapy or exchange transfusion. When they've looked at multiple full-term studies and done meta-analyses, that risk is really not borne out. A few studies have suggested potentially higher phototherapy, but looking at bilirubin levels, there's really no difference. And one of the thoughts is even regarding jaundice is that you're actually sending more blood to the liver and it actually might be working better and conjugating that bilirubin better. And so I don't think from what we've seen that doing a universal implementation of delayed cord clamping from what we've seen from randomized controlled trials, that you're going to see any noticeable increase in adverse effects in these infants. And when you compare even that theoretical risk of a slightly higher bilirubin compared to the overwhelming benefit of neurodevelopment, less mortality, it seems quite obvious that this is a simple, easy intervention to do with very little risk from what we've seen of doing this now for decades of research. And obviously, as we mentioned earlier, historically, this is what we did before we had obstetricians and neonatologists cutting cords and whisking babies off. So I'm glad we're trying to rectify the problem now. And again, I love that there is essentially no risk to this. It's all benefit. Right. That's the big take home point I want people to understand. So what about contraindications? Is there anything that might be going on with the mother or with the baby that we would want to tell a provider on either side of this that, hey, this is something you may not want to do in this situation? What's your take there? From what I can tell you from not only our clinical practice, but as well as our research protocols, obviously there's any concern that the mother is hemorrhaging or bleeding or delaying getting the placenta out, et cetera, could pose an additional risk to her. We absolutely advocate, yes, you don't want to let the mom have any risk of blood loss and that's excessive. So those are situations where if there's a severe abruption or uterine rupture, and we've all been to those urgent deliveries, yes, those are babies that don't get delayed cord clamp because the mother will unfortunately suffer from that. Good. Yeah, that's super important. I want to ask you about a study that you just completed. It's, it's not been published yet, but I had the opportunity to review it. And I thought there were some just fascinating things in there. This was the study looking at the benefit of delayed cord clamping in preterm infants, less than 32 weeks, less than 1,500 grams. And we've not mentioned this yet when we've talked about the benefits, but one of the things that this study looked at was mortality rates associated with optimal cord clamping. Now, you found that there was a 44% decrease in the risk of mortality when a baby had the benefit of delayed cord clamping in relation to those babies who had no delayed cord clamping. And you further broke it down by hospital. And you found that if the hospital was able to increase their delayed cord clamping rates, defined as 60 seconds, for every 10% increment they were able to do that, that would decrease the infant mortality rate in that facility by 5%. That completely blew me away. To have something we can do in the delivery room that is no risk, that is no cost, that is all benefit for the baby and a benefit in the system's infant mortality rate is just phenomenally huge. Why do you think this has such a big impact on mortality rate? Yeah, I think definitely kudos to Henry Lee. We have essentially similar to you, a California perinatal collaborative that allows 
a lot of NICUs to share their data. And so this allowed us to take essentially several NICUs and combine data that's been put together and looking at cord clamping rates and, and outcomes like uh, mortality and other morbidities. Even in the original trial that I was referring to that reduced mortality, this is a study conducted out of Australia of 1,600 babies. They couldn't find one identifying cause of, well, why did this baby die of X or Y? And I think it goes back to the first thing I was talking about earlier that when babies are born, they have to send blood to their lungs. If they don't send blood to their lungs, they have to steal the blood from other organs. So that lung volume, uh, blood flow is only about 10%. It needs to increase to 100. Where is that blood going to come from? If it doesn't come from the placenta and the cord, it's got to come from other organs, the brain, the heart, the lungs, the intestines. So now you talk about morbidities like necrotizing enterocolitis, pulmonary hemorrhage, chronic lung disease, brain injury like IVH. I do think causing these babies to have hypovolemia or ischemia of multiple tissues, you may not find that right cause of, well, that baby died because of X, Y, or Z. But anytime you're a baby starting off with a negative, not having that blood flow is going to impact so many downstream things. So to me, it's always seemed really clear, yes, mortality would be affected by um, not waiting that minute, not giving that baby a chance to transition a little bit. And hospitals that don't have that practice are not going to benefit at all from having those improved outcomes. So it was a really nice way of looking at big aggregate data to show that, yes, for every 10%, you can increase your delay cord clamping rates and just try to strive for that 90% target. Think about what you could do to your in-hospital mortality rate. And again, we're talking about the most fragile babies under 32 weeks in, in most hospitals. So whether even if you have a small NICU, you know, that was the other thing. We had small NICUs and large NICUs, community hospitals, university hospitals. It didn't matter where you were born. This signal was consistent throughout. And I think it really does speak to the generalizability of this intervention. What has happened in California can happen in Tennessee. It doesn't matter what type of baby we're talking about. This is an intervention that will benefit everybody. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I, and I love that too. It's starting your journey in the NICU with a full tank right. versus <laughs> trying to get going with, with half a tank. You're not right. That's a great analogy. So there was something else that interested me in, as I reviewed this too. And that was your APGAR score connection. You looked at babies that had low APGAR scores and or the need for intubation. And those babies who were whisked away immediately when somebody said, hey, I need to resuscitate that baby and did not get the benefit of optimal cord clamping also did worse in comparison to the babies who somebody looked at him and said, yeah, he's going to have a low APGAR score. I'm going to need to do something, but I'm going to wait this 60 seconds and let this baby also get a full tank. Before I begin my resuscitation. What does that tell us as providers and what we need to do when we see this baby and our instinct is to get in there and do something versus maybe I don't? What's the lesson from this data? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. If anything, I think that's probably the strongest point of that cohort study is that we were wanting to ensure that it wasn't just the hospitals that had well babies that had lower mortality. Because of course, doing delayed cord clapping in a baby who's crying full term, or not even full-term, but a 32-weeker, of course, it's easy to wait 60 seconds on a healthy baby. What those sick babies, some hospitals just get a lot more sick babies. They get, they have more transfer in of women who are sicker. And does that impact mortality? But in fact, it's still held true. The babies who were sicker, but still received delayed cord climbing by using, you know, an APGAR surrogate and intubation, were still having less mortality than those babies who didn't. And I think what it tells us is, and I saw this in your protocol, that even if you can wait 30 seconds, just stimming the baby, giving them some time to transition, even if they look like they're not breathing, 
is still going to have a benefit. And I think that's the point to providers is to say, well, yeah, I know that baby's sick. I know that feel heart tones were down and we're doing an urgent section, but let's just wait. Let's just try to give this baby a chance to breathe and, and stimulate the baby. And even if they don't do that well on the court, they still have that extra, like you said, uh, full tank of gas to be able to deal with the problems that happen downstream, even if they get intubated and because and they have low oxygen levels. Well, now they have more blood to carry that oxygen to the rest of their tissues. And all those sort of downstream benefits, even in a sick baby, can still hold true and ultimately reduce mortality or other morbidity. So the sicker kids, and this is something I always like to talk about in my talks, is that it's the sickest babies you and I care about that need delayed core clamping even more. We definitely, we care about the term babies, don't get us wrong, but as neonatologists, our focus is that sick baby that needs us there at the delivery to help them. And we want to make sure those babies get delayed core clamping. This data supports that conclusion that they need it as much or even more than those babies who aren't sick. And I think we have to sort of continue to drill that down. Whereas right now our approach has been the backwards. It's the sicker babies. Oh, no, no, no. We can't do it on them because they're too sick. Well, they're the ones that really need this the most. And I think we have to flip that on its head. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. So again, big point here for the audience. It's the tiny babies and it's the sick babies who absolutely need this the most. The ones that we as neonatologists and obstetricians want to get rid of and get back to NICU, these are the ones we need to count to 60 very slowly and, and keep ourselves calm absolutely. while we let these babies get a full tank. Hey, so one of the other things I've got to talk about is umbilical cord milking. You published, you were the lead author in 2019 on that big article in the Journal of American Medical Association that talked about umbilical cord clamping. And everybody was very hopeful that this would be very similar right. to delayed cord clamping. And what, so can you tell our audience very quickly what umbilical cord milking is? Yeah. What your study found? And then is there ever a place for umbilical cord milking in this? discussion or in the delivery room? Three questions. I like to throw the word intact because there's a little bit of a disclaimer there, but intact cord milking is the baby's delivered with the cord still connected to the placenta. And while it's still connecting, you're slowly trying to pinch the cord with your finger and your thumb and squeeze the blood towards the infant and releasing it and doing that four times before the cord is clamped and cut. And of course, there's variations. Some people do it three, some people do it five. Some people cut the cord and then bring the baby over and then milk it once. We've studied what prior trials have looked at, which is this intact cord milking of four times before the cord is clamped and cut. Why would you want to do that? Well, it can be done within about 15 to 20 seconds. And the thought was it could be an alternative when that baby can't receive a full 60 second delay and allow them to receive resuscitation. So we embarked on a multi-center non-inferiority trial that the idea would be, could cord milking be non-inferior, meaning an alternative for people like you and me to use when the baby's too sick to receive delayed cord clamping. And about a third of the way through, we found that the smallest babies, the 23 to 27 week infants, had more brain bleeding with milking the cord than they did with delayed cord clamping. So we stopped the study in that group. We're actually continuing to look at it in the older group because we're not seeing that same signal of harm. After that study, we ourselves stopped doing this procedure, ACOG then, and I think the AP or at least the NRP have both come out and discouraged the use of cord milking in those babies. One reason we believe it wasn't seen in other trials is they hadn't enrolled enough small babies. The 23, 24 weekers are, were very prone to developing brain bleeds with this technique. And so to date, that's been the recommendations, even though it hasn't been sort of seen in these smaller trials so far. 
the last part of your question about is there a place, the other groups that we're looking at are the full-term babies that are too sick to receive delayed cord clamp because they're asphyxiated and not breathing or moving. And so that study, we're hoping to have some results in the next few weeks. And then the other group that anecdotally, I don't have any evidence for this. So this is, again, disclaimer, my own personal opinion, is those situations where you and I just spoke about when a baby cannot receive delayed cord clapping due to maternal indications, a hemorrhage, when there's a placental abruption, those sorts of things. Is there any benefit of, of again, milking the cord in those situations? We don't do that in preterm babies, but a full-term baby could theoretically benefit from that additional blood when the placenta is starting to detach from the mother. So let's talk about implementation and how we put this into a hospital, into our practice, into a system. There's obviously no reason I would not want to do this as a provider based on our discussion and the discussion we've had in previous podcasts with our obstetrical friend. Why is it so hard, do you think, for pediatricians, neonatologists, providers to take something that there's so much evidence for and then try to change our practice? Why is that such a hard thing? Yeah, I, I think since this podcast is mostly on our side, I think as pediatricians and neonatologists, anytime we see something that's really we've been doing so long and so well at and, and trying to adopt a change, where now we're not going to get the baby for another minute or 90 seconds or whatever time frame that the baby's still receiving delayed cord clamping, I think the angst has always been, well, I, I just don't know. I'm not going to be able to evaluate that baby. Is there a delay in something? Am I not going to give the oxygen to that baby? That baby might be too sick. They're only 23, 25 weeks. And that, that on our side, I feel like that's always been the, the hardest thing for changes. Yeah, I get that there's these benefits, but what I'm seeing are is a baby who might need me sooner. And I think it's us getting past that, you know, resuscitation, the benefits of, for that baby are happening even before you and I get our hands on that child. And, and understanding that will help us down the road, I think, has been the hardest thing for us to adapt, especially for centers that I still see today that are, are struggling with implementing delayed core clapping the smallest babies. I think that's where we as neonatologists are still struggling is, can we implement it for that 23, 24-week baby who's really small, who might need oxygen and support, but is getting the benefit of that blood even before they get to us? Are we willing to believe in that and accept that? And I think that's been a struggle. The idea of moving things quickly is always hard for us as neonatologists. We tend to want to jump in and do a bunch of things. And we have to understand that this is important. So obviously you've been doing this for a while in California. Have you got any pushback from your colleagues in California when you started doing this? Did you have difficulties with your obstetricians, with your neonatology colleagues? What kind of response did you get when you came to them and said, hey, we're going to start doing this at our hospital tomorrow. Let's go. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, when I moved to Sharp about nine years ago to start, it's the biggest, big delivery hospital, lots of private, 70 obstetricians. So we have a lot of people to work with. And it was definitely, as you can only imagine, more of the senior personnel, people that have been doing obstetrics and metology for 30 years, and this is how we've done things, and I can't imagine why this would work. And it was, again, just those kind of conversations uh, and explaining things to them about what this baby needs, the benefits that it helps us down the road, and helping that sort of them understand that. And then really trying to communicate every time we had a delivery to, to explain at that timeout, this is what we're doing. We're waiting 60 seconds to help the baby transition. And, and over time, it happened. But I had a lot of, I, I don't think California in so many ways is any different than any other state. And definitely not different than Tennessee when it comes to just changing culture. We are ingrained in what we do. And the longer we're doing something, the harder it is to change. So I think as far as an implementation, it's really conversations. And even uh, the other piece for us as neonatologists, for people like you and I to be in there, be in the operating room, just to say, hey, we're here. 
to support the baby too. Yeah, we're asking you to stimulate the baby, but I'm here. I'm evaluating the baby with you. I'm not just leaving it in your hands and waiting over in the corner by the warmer for you to bring me the baby. We, we have to really engage them. And I think that's the part we can do better. We can really collaborate more with our obstetricians. Sometimes I feel like there's just this disconnect. Their job is to deliver the baby and our job is just to catch the baby and move the baby over here. But we can be engaged even at the delivery process and, and support them and the baby so that they feel comfortable in what they're doing and waiting that 60 seconds. So help us out with TIPQC and what we're trying to do with this project. Give me maybe three things that when you rolled this out in your hospital system, three things that you learned, three things that went well, three things that you implemented, three things that you had to change to influence your culture that we could take from you and maybe adapt into our project and what we're doing. And and also the hospitals that are going to be participating in this, they might be able to use this as they build out their own toolkits. Yeah. uh, Okay. Well, I think, and some of these might be more unique to me, but in my setting here, one of the things I, I, we did right away was just essentially engage the obstetricians every day. I essentially took my whole rounding process, how I entered the hospital. I went into the OB lounge, the OB writing area, and just built more of a rapport and a relationship. I think the challenge sometimes, Scott, with you and I is we're just engaged with our own colleagues and what we do. We don't hang out with the obstetricians or talk to them about babies. And I think Part of that is just making our cultures more enmeshed. So I went to OB meetings as well and, and gave a couple of grand round talks, just trying to build in the culture and the science, helping them understand, well, why are we doing this? Are we just doing this because Anoop, you want me to just do it? Or is there something behind what you're talking about? And we owe it to them to be able to s- explain the science and, and what it's come from, because it's mostly in our literature. It's not in their literature as much. And I think that's the initial thing I would say as far as what I learned for helping implement this. Then the other piece was on the back end, which was debriefing with them, telling them every time I have a baby that gets delayed cord clamping, I come back around and I tell them, look how the baby's doing so great. The baby's on CPAP, is breathing great. Thank you so much for waiting. Or if the baby's intubated, the baby's still looking good. Everything looks really well. Thank you again. And giving them that positive feedback. And then if it doesn't go well, We can talk about, well, I saw that we had to clamp the core early. Do you think there was anything else we could have done? While we do that for our resuscitation, we can also do that with our LBs. Because again, cord clamping is part of resuscitation. It's the first step for that baby. So when it doesn't go right, we should address it the same way as if we failed to intubate a baby right away or we didn't check the heart rate as soon. Let's bring all those culture pieces together. And then the third piece was just building it into our ongoing discussions we would present data to them in terms of how things are going with our core clamping rates. And it sounds like this is something you're going to build in your own system and really looking at our benchmarks. Where are we at? We started around like 11% when we first did this nine years ago and really inching up every year. And we put it into our EMR so we could build in reports. OBs would have to put a little bullet in their note about what did they do to the cord. And that way we could pull aggregate data to share with them. And I think those sort of initial steps, the report, and immediate feedback and talking about them during the procedure and then presenting data with them, I think were probably some eight, three things I really learned in this process of implementation. Love it. That's awesome. That's a wealth of information right there. So you've mentioned, obviously, you're part of a large academic center. But part of what's happening in California is you've gotten some of these smaller centers, smaller NICUs, smaller delivering hospitals involved. What's the message to these smaller hospitals and why are they so important? especially when we're talking about a statewide project of their need to be involved in a project like this. One analogy of a small hospital, and this is not meant to be negative, but 
obviously bigger hospitals might have bigger resources, right? We have a delivery room team that just does this all the time. If you're at a small hospital, you're sharing resources. You might have, for instance, respiratory therapists that have to cover adults and, and then go resuscitate babies or nurses that have to be floated around or physicians that are, are being stretched. The analogy of this is, it may not be a good one, but it's, it's home births. Midwives that deliver babies at home, the last thing they ever would do in a baby who's not doing well is cut the cord. Why? Because they don't have resources. They don't have a full staff to help resuscitate a baby or code a child. So they keep that cord connected as a lifeline. I would say smaller NICUs would benefit even more from delayed cord clapping because you want to ease your baby to resuscitate with the limited resources you have. If you're a level two unit, you don't want to have a baby that needs intubation because then they have to go to a level three unit. So Implementing this in smaller NICUs becomes even more important because you can take a baby who could potentially have been really sick and make them better and actually do better. And therefore, they can stay with you in your unit and use the resources that you have. The other thing, your smaller units probably don't have big groups to deal with. You might only have two or three major OBs or in-house hospitalist OB service, and it might make it easier to connect and educate a, a smaller group than somebody like me that has his 70 OBs flying around everywhere that we have to pin down and, and, and try to educate. So in some of those ways, it becomes even more important for, for referral centers. We want to have those small units do well, right? So they don't have to get transferred to us and, and increase morbidity. So there are plenty of reasons why it's even more important for those smaller hospitals, those level one, two units to be able to implement this as much as it is for us. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's true in California, but one of the things in Tennessee is that most of the babies in Tennessee are actually born at these smaller hospitals. While the academic hospitals certainly do a large number of deliveries, it's the smaller hospitals that actually deliver the majority of the babies. In Tennessee. Yeah, no, I think that's true here as well. That's a real super important point for us as, as, as hospitals are considering this and hopefully listening to this podcast today that uh, you'll see the importance of you needing to be involved in this as well. So, hey, as we wrap up, I just want to thank you for our time together. And I know you have several projects that are ongoing looking at umbilical cord management and exactly what we need to do. Is there anything you've learned so far that you can share with our audience about the direction umbilical cord management is going? Yeah, I know, Scott, I think that's a great question. And for me, I think the future direction for us is to ensure that we eliminate immediate cord clamping. And while you and I discussed reasons, one of the reasons we never put on that, on that bullet point was babies that need resuscitation. And I think the most common reason why babies are getting early cord clapping is this perceived need for resuscitation. So what if we could bring resuscitation to the baby, to the mother, to the bedside, where we can allow that baby to receive breathing assistance there? It would also eliminate the need for things like cord milking, where you're having to milk the cord because you want to get the baby over sooner to the warmer. If you bring all that to the mother, can we avoid that? And I think that's where we're going in the future. We've done a few studies and there's a few going on right now in the U.S. and Europe and Australia. And I think that area of resuscitation with an intact cord is probably where we'll end up in five to 10 years, where instead of us having these warmers, we're going to have equipment that's right on next to the mother. The parents can touch their baby, see what we're doing. It changes the whole dynamic of resuscitation. But it is an exciting field. And I do think that's something we need to keep in mind. Our roles will be changing, I think, I really believe, over the next five to 10 years of how we resuscitate newborns. Awesome. Well, hopefully this project will help put Tennessee on the forefront of these changes that you're going to be leading us down in the future. One of the things I'd I like to end with is I just want you to imagine that you've got a big billboard somewhere. And on this billboard, you can put anything you want on it. It doesn't have to be related to what we've discussed today. It could just be just a, a message that you want 
people to see as they're going to work, as they're out and about town? What would you put on that billboard? My interest has always been on resuscitation, whether it's surfactant, cord management. And when we were talking about or setting up this podcast, the first thing I always ask the OBs when I go into the room is, could we just wait a minute? And I would put that on a billboard and just, you could have a baby and the idea of that segment, that, that set amount of time in a baby's life has such an important dynamic for that child moving forward. When we talk about how important resuscitation research is, it's, we believe that what we're doing those first few minutes has a profound impact on those infants downstream course for the rest of their lives and certain tweaking of things and adjusting things. And that 60 second delay, I really think is probably the most important thing we could do. And these newborn infants, probably after breastfeeding, I mean, maybe people will be upset that I put it in front of it, but it's the first thing that happens even before that. And I think we need to put it up there with probably the most important thing we can do for a newborn baby is to just wait a minute. And that's it. Just get to that point for these babies, I think would change so much of what we're seeing right now in our newborns. Yeah. I love that message too, because I think just waiting a minute could probably make an impact in a lot of aspects in our lives, not just the first minute of a newborn baby's life. Absolutely love it. And again, thank you for your time today. I want to remind everybody, we've got an annual meeting, March 7th and 8th. Dr. Katheria will be one of our guest speakers there. QC will be rolling out this optimal cord clamping project. If you are a provider in Tennessee, please make sure your hospital will be involved in this. We would love to partner with you and help to improve the rates of a delayed cord clamping across our great state. We will be providing our listener notes and the resources that Dr. Katheria will be providing us about optimal cord clamping if you want to read further about this. And as always, you can reach out and contact us with any questions that you might have. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.